0: All right? Good morning, everybody. So glad to see you this morning. And I do hope that you have your Bible with you and that you will open to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible with you, you need to find one. There should be some in the pew racks in front of you. In fact, if you don't own a Bible, if you don't have a Bible of your own, take one of those from the pew. Uh, consider it our gift to you. Uh, but open it to 2 Corinthians chapter 1 so you can follow along as we study God's word together. Last week, I tried to spend some time. Tra- introducing you to the letter we call Second Corinthians and Paul's relationship with the church to whom it is written. Before we got into all of that, though, I tried once again to lay out the argument for our commitment to expositional preaching here at First Baptist. I think it's important to do that on occasion uh, because it really matters that we know why we do what we do. Not just that we do a thing a certain way, but why we do it a certain way. To introduce the letter and Paul's relationship with the church, I tried to walk you through a timeline of his engagement with the church. You may remember this graphic. I'll put it back on the, on the screen for you again. We know that Paul made his initial pioneer visit to the church, at, to Corinth, and the church was planted. By his ministry of evangelism and church planting and gathering and discipleship and equipping of leaders, the church in Corinth was born. And then we know that there was an exchange of letters. Uh, A letter that Paul wrote to Corinth that we don't have a record of and a letter that Corinth wrote to Paul. So there was a back and forth exchange that we just don't have any record of. And then he wrote 1 Corinthians that we have in our Bibles that we've studied before in this room, benefited from greatly. After that, Paul sent his protege Timothy to visit the church in Corinth. Mark that down. That's going to come up in the text today uh, that they're familiar with Timothy because he's been to visit them on Paul's behalf. And then Paul himself made another visit that he calls the painful visit. It was evidently pretty short-lived and something bad happened. Um, Paul was attacked on some level and he didn't stay very long and left uh, with a deep wound. And, um, and then he sent Titus, his other protege, co-worker, to visit the church on his behalf. And Titus was carrying another letter that we don't have a record of, um, just a reference to. A severe letter that Paul wrote, a tearful letter that Paul wrote uh, to the church at Corinth in response to whatever drama happened when he visited that second time. And then he wrote 2 Corinthians that we have, that we are studying. Um, And then after that, he made a third visit to Corinth. He talks about making plans to make a third visit, and he indeed does, we know from Acts. And I laid all that out for you to show you that when we are engaging 2 Corinthians, we are engaging correspondence and relationship Between a church and an apostle that know each other well. Like they have had a significant amount of time together. Paul is super invested in these people. And we also know that it wasn't always smooth sailing. It's not like Paul and the church always got along. It's not like Paul and the church were always in agreement. It's not like they didn't go through some difficult times. It was not always smooth sailing. So we saw this great quote from Gary Miller, who continues, by the way, to just have this tone throughout his commentary. I love it. It's very uh, relatable. He said, uh, Paul both loved the Corinthians and was driven nuts by them in equal measure. Um, I just think that that is so true about a lot of life and ministry and and, uh, the reality of the church. And so we talked about how, within the church, nothing's easy. Life together in the church is messy. And we need to admit, with humility, that we all contribute to that mess. None of us have the opportunity to step back and say, you guys are so messy. You guys are just a total mess. Uh, We all have to, to own our part of the mess and recognize that we contribute to it. And consequently, leadership in the church is tricky Because nothing's easy, because life in the church is messy, leadership in the church is tricky. And we're going to see that throughout Paul's life with Corinth. We're going to see it in this letter in particular. Leadership is tricky. But the second thing we talked about last week is it's worth it. It's worth it. Life in the church, messy as it is, tricky as it is, is worth it. Because the reality is, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we need the church. We need the church. We desperately need the church. There is no design in the New Testament of Christian believers who live in isolation, who are just scattered out all alone in isolation. No, we need the church, and the church needs us. You need the church, and the church needs you. You bring something to the table within the gathering that no one else on the planet brings. And God has placed you as a member of this body and when a part of this body is missing, the whole body suffers. That's 1 Corinthians stuff. Um, But it's definitely a lesson we also see applied throughout 2 Corinthians and we realize is the reality in our own lives. Nothing's easy, but it's worth it. And the third thing is we need to remember that Jesus holds it all together, right? It's not easy, but Jesus is with us, right? It's worth it because Jesus is with us. He's the one that holds it all together. And so we've got to keep our eyes on him as we seek to live Uh, as his people. Well, this week we're going to dive into the text by looking at one single verse that is often just glossed over, completely ignored, simply as part of the normal form of letters in ancient times. We treat chapter 1, verse 1, as if there's nothing there for us. We read it, but then we move on, and we really don't start studying oftentimes until verse 3 of 2 Corinthians. But that's a huge mistake, and I hope you will acknowledge that by the end of the day. I hope you'll agree with me by the end of the day that skipping over chapter 1 verse 1 as if there's nothing there is a huge mistake. We believe here at First Baptist that all scripture is inspired by God and all scripture is profitable to us and this is scripture. Therefore, it is inspired and profitable to us and so it is wise for us to take time to look at it today. Also, it's worth noting that Paul is never content to settle for mere formula. He is never content just to settle for the normal expectation of writing. He often uses the standard expected convention as an opportunity to to communicate important foundational truths. In fact, I, I will argue today that he is, in his introduction, in his identification of himself and Timothy and the church, he is going to lay out major themes Major themes that he's going to unpack throughout the rest of the letter are found in these first few words. So as we read it today and study it, be on the lookout for authority, community, and identity. Three big themes that are going to be chased, explored, encouraged, all throughout the letter are right here in these first few verses. Authority, community, and identity. Let's look at it. Chapter 1, verse 1. It says, Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth with all the saints who are throughout Achaia. As we prayed today, we're gonna gonna borrow a prayer from a book called The Valley of Vision, which is a collection of Puritan prayers and devotions that are just incredible, Um, so useful for everyday life. If you don't have a copy of Valley of Vision, you should get one, any bookseller would have it. Um we're going we're gonna to borrow this prayer. I have smoothed it. It's super old language. So I took out the these and thous and the ests um, and, and I kind of made it a more modern language. But it's the essence of this prayer. And let's pray this prayer together. This is the way the Puritans would pray as they engaged God's word. And so I want it to be our prayer as well. So maybe uh, the best way to pray today is not with your head bowed and your eyes closed. Um, but maybe the best way to pray is with your eyes on the screen so that you can take in these words and make them the prayer of your own heart. Let's pray together. O oh God of love, I approach you with encouragements derived from your character. For I am not left to feel after you in the darkness of my nature, nor to worship you as an unknown God. I cannot find out your perfections, but I know you are good, ready to forgive, and plenteous in mercy. You have displayed your wisdom, power, power and goodness in all your works, and you have revealed your will in the scripture of truth. You have caused it to be preserved, translated, published, multiplied, so that all men may possess it and find you in it. Here, I see all your greatness and grace, your pity and righteousness, your mercy, And your truth, your being and men's hearts. Through it, you have magnified your name and favored mankind with the gospel. Have mercy on me, for I have ungratefully received your benefits. Little improved on my privileges, made light of spiritual things, disregarded your messages, Contended with examples of good, rebukes of conscience, admonitions of friends, leadings of providence. I deserve that your kingdom be taken away from me. Lord, I confess my sin with feeling, lamentation, a broken heart, a contrite spirit, self-abhorrence, self-condemnation, self-despair. Give me relief by Jesus, my hope, faith in his name as savior, forgiveness by his blood, strength by his presence, holiness by his spirit, and let me love you with all my heart. Amen. Amen. We don't don't pray like that anymore, hardly, right? That's good stuff, that we would come to God's word with that attitude of humility Submission and a desire to hear and be changed. All right, look at chapter one, verse one. Paul, that's the first word, right? And we know Paul a little bit. In fact, we just spent eight weeks examining his life and ministry from the scriptures. You can go back if you weren't a part of that study and go back and check those out. Most of them are up on our website, fbchairsburg.com. We have studied not only Paul's life and ministry in that character. Uh, study we did we have also studied a number of his new testament letters in this room over the last several years we know paul i feel like we know paul and we often call him the apostle paul which is fine because that's how he identifies himself to the church at corinth look at it paul an apostle that's where he goes right off the bat and this is not always the way he identifies himself to churches in his letters sometimes he calls himself a servant paul the servant Or the slave, or precisely the bondslave of the Lord Jesus Christ. But here, he intentionally calls himself an apostle. That word apostle, which in Greek, by the way, sounds just like the word in English, apostle, it means simply sent one, one who is sent out. In fact, uh, Strong's Concordance identifies it this way a messenger, envoy, delegate, one commissioned by another to represent him in some way. And that's a general usage of the word. And in this way, it can be applied in a number of different arenas, a number of different areas. You could apply it in politics, like the king or the governor sent someone with his authority to speak on his behalf. That would be an apostle in a very general and secular sense. Or in business, you know, the president of the company sent someone uh, to represent him uh, and speak for him. So you could use it in that very general way, and the language allows for it, but there is a more specific way that the New Testament uses the word and that Paul is using it here. So on one hand, it can be a messenger, envoy, delegate, one commissioned by another. But on the other hand, it is especially a man sent out by Jesus Christ himself to preach the gospel. So here we have a general word from the language that is adopted, adopted. Adopted by the church and used in a very technical and specific sense to refer to one who is sent out by Jesus Christ himself to preach the gospel. And that's the way Paul is using the word here in 2 Corinthians. And the clauses that follow it make that abundantly clear. Like we don't just take, I'm not just making that stance based on the word apostle. I'm making that stance based on apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Like he's being super specific here and technical in the way he uses it. And this is the way that the people in Corinth, at least the church in Corinth, would have received it. And this is the way they should have received him. Like they should acknowledge him as an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, an authoritative representative of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And we're going to see that in saying it this way, he's hinting at something he's going to talk a great deal more about throughout the letter. Now there is, when we talk about apostle as sent one, There is a sense in which every one of us, as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, everyone in the church is an apostle because of the Great Commission. We are sent ones generally because of the Great Commission. You know Jesus' words in Matthew 28. It says, He came up and spoke to them saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore. You catch that? Catch that exchange? All authority has been given to me. And so he speaks to his people, go therefore. That's the idea of sending them with his authority, sending them out. To do what? Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So we are all, I don't want to miss this, we are all supposed to preach the gospel, but... There is a way to use the word apostle and the idea of one being sent out that is much more specific. And it is that specific sense in which Paul is using the word in the text. And it carries authority, like big time authority. And in fact, it can easily be argued that the original audience to whom Paul is writing would have equated apostle, as Paul uses it here, with prophet in the Old Testament. They would have heard apostle within the church and equated it not with a governor's emissary, not not with a businessman's representative, but they would have equated it immediately with a prophet from the Old Testament, one who was sent by the Lord, an authoritative messenger and representative speaking on behalf of the Lord. Now, all of this is important because we know that there were some people in Corinth who were challenging Paul's apostleship. And he's going to spend a great deal of time in 2 Corinthians, arguably more than any other, any other book of the Bible. Galatians, he does this some, but more so in 2 Corinthians, he's going to spend time arguing and defending his apostleship. But here, he simply states it. He declares it right off the bat in his very introduction to them. Not Paul, the guy who preached the gospel to you initially. Not Paul, the guy who planted the church. Not Paul, the guy that you know. Not Paul, the guy that you ran out of town last time he came to visit you. But Paul, an apostle. He's laying it down as an authoritative character that they need to receive with that authority. He's setting the stage for the defense that is coming. And he goes on and qualifies it. So Paul, an apostle, an apostle. Of Christ Jesus. Now, when we talked weeks ago about Paul's conversion, we noted two things in particular. One, it was an encounter with the resurrected Lord Jesus. When he was converted, it was in, a, in an encounter, an eyewitness encounter with the resurrected Lord Jesus. You remember how this goes, right? Paul is on the road to Damascus for vacation. Paul is on the road to Damascus to greet the Christians there with a warm hand of fellowship. No, Paul is on his way to Damascus to persecute the church of God there, right? He's endorsed by the leadership in Jerusalem to go find followers of Jesus in Damascus, arrest them, bring them back to Jerusalem so that they can, I mean, let's be honest, eventually be put to death. That's what's going to happen. He's persecuting the way unto death. And on the way, bright light knocks him down and he hears a voice and the voice says what? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he says, who are you, Lord? And a voice says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. He has an eyewitness encounter with the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. And he claims to be an eyewitness to the resurrected Lord, just like Peter, James, and John were eyewitness, eyewitnesses to the resurrected Lord. We see him do this in 1 Corinthians 15, right? As he talks about, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised the third day according to the scriptures, right? That's the text we usually talk most about, but he goes on and he says, and we were all eyewitnesses of this. And he goes, goes on talking about those who were eyewitnesses to the resurrection. And he says, and last of all, last of all, me as one untimely born was a witness to the thing as well. So one of the, one of the important parts of Paul's conversion experience was an eyewitness encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ. And that qualifies him to be an apostle, just like Peter, James, and John. It's part of what qualifies him, right? Second thing that happened at his conversion is that it was accompanied with a calling to preach. Look at Acts chapter 9. This is the first time we hear the story of Paul's conversion. Acts chapter 9, God tells Ananias to go get Paul. And he tells him this. It says, but the Lord said to me, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the sons of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So Paul, he he can't even see yet, right? He hasn't even regained his sight after this encounter with the Lord Jesus. And already there is this clear clear directive that he will represent me before the Gentiles, that he will preach my name before the Gentiles, all the nations and kings and such. So his conversion not only came with an eyewitness to the resurrected Lord Jesus, but a direct commission to preach. And that qualifies him to be an authoritative apostle for this church in Corinth. The expository commentary says it like this. This is what it means to be an apostle. It is to be sent by Christ to commend and defend the gospel that has erupted in world history through Christ's life, death, and resurrection. Beseeching its hearers to confess their sins and yield allegiance to Christ. And we know that Paul understood his ministry that way, right? We we know that he understood not just that he'd been converted and forgiven of his sins and was now a follower of Jesus, but was to be a representative of Jesus authoritatively amongst the Gentiles. He writes about it in Romans. I skipped one, so you had to go back. Romans chapter 1. This is Paul articulating his calling. He says, Paul, this is his introduction to the church at Rome. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David, according to the flesh, who was declared the son of God with power by the resurrection of the dead, according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship, to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his namesake, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. So he understood that he was called and shown grace and authorized as an apostle specifically to the Gentiles. You see that? That's the way he talks about it. And he actually does it. We've got all this evidence throughout the known world of the time that he actually did that. He went to places and represented Christ and spoke authoritatively. The gospel was preached and churches were planted. In fact, he does it even in 2 Corinthians. Look at chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul actually doing the work of an apostle. He says, therefore, in verse 20, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This is is him doing the work of an apostle, even amongst the church at Corinth. So he says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, eyewitness and directly charged by Christ with the office and the work of apostleship, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. That's the next thing he says, by the will of God. Therefore, not by the will of Paul, Paul's not an apostle because that's something he strived for. He's not an apostle because it's something he desired, right? In fact, when he was called, he was on his way to persecute the church. It's not something he was looking for, but it's by the will of God that he is an apostle. And it's not by the Corinthians' will that he's an apostle. They didn't bestow upon him this office. They didn't charge him with this authority. In fact, they weren't even believers when he came to town. So it's not by his will, nor is it by the will of the Corinthians, but by God's will. Scott Hafeman spent some time talking about the work of the Father and the work of the Son in Paul's apostleship. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. How's that work together? Haferman says, Christ is the one who directly and ultimately sent him. God is the intermediate agent of Paul's apostleship. God the Father is what he's talking about there. Christ is the one responsible for sending Paul, but God the Father is the one who made this sending possible. He boils it down in one sentence at the end. He says, Christ sends Paul in accordance with the Father's will. That's how it works. So it's not in conflict here that he's an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, but those two things, those two um, persons of the Godhead working in harmony to send Paul out with authority. Now, when Paul talks about this, Apostleship, he's humble about it. Every time he brings it up, he's humble about it because of his life of persecution beforehand. Yet we must recognize that he is an apostle, that Paul is an authoritative representative of the Lord Jesus Christ, and therefore he must be listened to. Paul is an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and so when he speaks, you must listen. The church at Corinth should have received his word as the word of the Lord. Not all of them did. That's plain throughout the letter. But they should have. And here in this room, we must receive his word as God's word and submit ourselves to it. Because we're talking about authority here. And so when we come to 2 Corinthians, it is authoritative over us. We don't get to decide if we will submit ourselves to it or not. We submit ourselves to it. We must, because this is the authoritative word of God. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. Now we know a thing or two about Timothy as well, right? Especially in his relationship with Paul. And also the church in Corinth would have known a thing or two about Timothy because he had visited them as Paul's representative at some point. And that's probably why he's included here. Not so much that Timothy helped Paul write the letter, but that Timothy was a familiar partner to them. They were familiar with Timothy as one of Paul's ministry partners. And maybe they hadn't had quite the scuffle with Timothy as they had with Paul. And so so maybe there's a little bit of seeking goodwill by mentioning Timothy because they didn't run Timothy out of town. Timothy is in this thing as well, and they have some affinity, evidently, for Timothy, and so Paul includes him. What I want you to notice, though, is how Paul identifies Timothy here. He does not identify Timothy as an apostle. Paul, an apostle. Timothy, our brother. Timothy, our brother. John Phillips says there is all the difference in the world between Paul, an apostle, and Timothy, our brother. Now, let's look at that a little more closely. He calls him brother, which is stressing the family connection, right? Stressing that this is not just a business relationship. This is not just a mission relationship. This is a family relationship. And notice also he calls him our brother, stressing not only his connection with Timothy but and their connection with Timothy, but all of their connection together. Timothy, our brother. Here's the point. Paul has just stressed his authority by identifying himself as an apostle. And here he stresses his family connection with them by calling Timothy our brother. And the lesson is the authority that Paul is going to exercise over the church is not distant and official authority. It's not just out of an office, but rather it is near and it is familial authority that he is going to exercise over them. He's not writing from the central office in Jerusalem to people he doesn't know anything about authoritatively. He is writing authoritatively to his own family as a brother and in some ways as a spiritual father. And that makes a difference, right? That, that even more so means they should listen to him because they're a family together and he is an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. The church in Corinth needed to remember that Paul's authority was near and it was familial. And we need to remember that that's the case as well. So, in these first couple of statements, Paul identifies himself as an apostle and Timothy as a brother. And then he moves on to talk about the recipients of the letter. And he says, To the church. The Greek word behind the word church here at its core means a gathering or an assembly. And the ancient world in the first century used this word in a very general way to describe almost any assembly of people that you can imagine. So so if you've got a crowd of people gathered for a festival, you would use the same word that's used here that we translate as church. Or if you've got a group of politicians gathered to do some kind of debate or business, you would call that the same word that we have here for church. That's what average Joe Greek man would have heard in this word. When we hear the word church, what do we think of? Mo- modern folks in America, when we hear the word church, what do we immediately think of? Well, I think if you went out on the street, people would talk about a building. They'd be like, oh, that, 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 that old building with the stained glass, that's a church. Or they might say, oh, it's an organization, you know, it's an entity. It's an organization with a, with a presence and a mission and something like that. But what I want you to know is that the original audience, the believers in Corinth, would have understood that word in its technical sense as a gathering of followers of Jesus. All right? It's kind of like the word apostle. It's got a general usage in the language, but it's got a technical usage within the, within the church. The word that's translated for church has a general usage in the language and a specific use for Christians as a gathering of God's people. So Paul Barnett says, Paul meant specifically an assembly of God's people in God's presence to hear God's word. That's the church. Assembly of God's people in God's presence to hear God's word. Now I noticed over the last week or so that our friends at The Journey in Marion, a church that we love uh, and are partnered with in a bunch of ways, They are starting a new sermon series today, and I thought their image is helpful. The image that they're using is helpful because it asks a question and then corrects the question. So it looks like the sermon series is, what is the church? But that's not the best question. The best question is, who is the church? Who is the church? It's a collection of God's people in God's presence to hear God's word. It's the people of God redeemed by grace through faith in Jesus, gathered under his lordship. So when Paul uses the word church to identify the recipients of the letter, that's what he's talking about. Not a building, not a general gathering of people, but specifically the gathering of the people of God to hear his word, submit to his lordship, to rejoice in the salvation that is theirs by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. who is the church, is a better question than what is the church. And whose is the church is also a good question that Paul answers in this text. To the church of God. That's what he says in the text, right? Not just the church, but the church of God. This phrase adds an important element to our understanding of the church. Whose is it? Whose church is it? It's God's church. Gary Miller, again, is helpful. The church is not our project, it's God's. The church is not our community, it's God's. Ultimately, the church is not even our responsibility, it's God's. Our God established it and he will care for it. Just as Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overcome it. God both provides for and rules his church. Amen. Don't forget that. Don't forget that. Let's not become militant about this so as to correct everyone who says, First Baptist Church is their church. Like like if you hear somebody say, hey, come to my church with me, don't be like, it's not your church. Don't, don't say that. Uh, that's not what they mean, right? Let's not become militant about it like that, but let's have a deep understanding that we belong to him. I belong to him. You belong to him if you are in Christ. And we together as the body of Christ belong to the Lord. It's his church. It's not mine it's not yours it's not your ancestors who helped found it it's his it's the church of god he bought us with the blood of his own son so paul says to the church of god which is at corinth this is also interesting right it's helpful to consider this as we build an understanding of the doctrine of the church The New Testament uses the word church technically in two ways. This is complicated, but it's interesting and helpful. On the one hand, the New Testament uses the word to refer to the universal church, that is, all believers of all time in all places. That's infrequent, but it's there. Most of the time, the New Testament uses the word church to refer to a local church, specific believers in a specific place in a specific time. And that's what's going on here. It's obviously That's what's going on here. The church of God at Corinth. Not the church of God on the planet, not the church of God for all time, but he is writing to the church of God at Corinth. And we believe that that the church is both universal and local. In fact, this is what we believe about the church at First Baptist. The New Testament church of the Lord Jesus Christ is an autonomous, local congregation of baptized believers associated by covenant in the faith and the fellowship of the gospel. Observing two ordinances of Christ, governed by his laws, exercising the gifts, rights, and privileges invested in them by his word, and seeking to extend the gospel to the ends of the earth. It goes on and says more, but that's the basics, right? The church is a local congregation of baptized believers covenanted together. And it is also, the New Testament speaks also of the church as the body of Christ, which includes all of the redeemed of all the ages, believers from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. We wanna be thinking on those two levels about the church. Most of our thought life though, most of our practice and application will be about the local church. Most of the New Testament is written to the local church. And Corinth was a local church in an interesting place. It had a unique context, it had unique challenges, it had unique opportunities for ministry. Some people would say that Corinth sat at the crossroads of the world in this time. It was a center for trade, It was a center for athletics. They held these uh, games that were rivaled only by the Olympic games uh, that happened routinely. And people would come from all over their own world to Corinth. It was a mixed up place of people from all kinds of backgrounds. Corinth was a unique place. And it was vital to the spread of the gospel in the region of Achaia. The gospel would go out like spokes from Corinth. And it's that local church to which Paul writes. And First Baptist Church Harrisburg is the local church, the Church of God at Harrisburg. That's who we are. We are here in a unique place with a unique context, unique challenges, unique opportunities for ministry. And we're not a big and important city, but we are vital to the spread of the gospel in the region of Southern Illinois. The gospel goes out like spokes from here. And so we receive the letter of 2 Corinthians to us as well. Restricted to them, specific to them, but applicable to all of us. He says, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, with all the saints who are throughout Achaia. Now let's focus in on that word saints. Urban theologian Lecrae says, Paul calls one of the worst churches in the New Testament saints. Not because of man's choosing, but clearly because of God's choosing through the Lord Jesus Christ. You agree that. Corinth is one of the worst churches in the New Testament? You should, if you've read the book. I mean, 1 Corinthians is chock full of trouble, is it not? They've got divisions. They've got pride. They've got arrogance. They are abusing poor people, evidently. And they got this one guy who's sleeping with his father's wife. And yet he calls them saints in 1 Corinthians. And again, here in 2 Corinthians, now that they have abused Paul in some way. He came to town. And they ran him out of town, and yet he calls them saints. The Greek word behind the word for saints means holy. So if you have a translation that says, and the holy ones who are throughout Achaia, that's really good. But how in the world can Paul call these people holy ones? How can he call these people saints after all they have done, like we talked about in 1 Corinthians, and they've done to him directly the painful visit and the tearful letter and all that? How can he call them saints? Listen, it's because he's talking about their position in Christ. He is talking there about their positional holiness in justification through faith in Jesus. You see, when we trust in Jesus as Savior and Lord, we are declared righteous by God's grace. Jesus' perfect righteousness is credited to our account in that moment. Like, our account filled up with Christ's righteousness just like his account was filled up with our sin on the cross our sin counted on him and he died for it his righteousness counted on us and we live forever because of it that's justification that's positional holiness that's what Paul is talking about remember he's writing to the church he's writing to people who profess faith in Jesus therefore he calls them saints he calls them holy ones but listen What he's doing here is he's establishing their positional identity so that for the rest of the letter, he can call them to live with corresponding practical behavior. He says, You are saints to the saints who are all throughout Achaia and in Corinth. He establishes their identity, and for the rest of the letter, he's going to say, Now act like saints. You are saints. Act like saints. Live like saints behave like saints, be the people God has made you to be. Paul is establishing this positional identity so that he can call them to corresponding practical behavior. One of the ways we've talked about this in this room is that there is an indicative foundation for imperative calls to action. There is, there is a statement of fact, this is who you are, that always precedes the calls to action. That's the way the gospel works. This is what you do. It never works the other way. Imagine if Paul had written a letter and said, if you'll deal with that guy who's sleeping with his father's wife, if you'll stop being mean to poor people, if you'll stop being divided about Paul and Apollos and Cephas and all these guys, then you'll be saints. Then you'll have right standing with God. Just do all these right things, clean up all your behavior, and then you'll have a right standing before God. Is that hopeful at all? No, because you'll never do that. You can never do that. But we are transformed from the inside by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. That happens first. And then we are conformed to the image of Christ as we grow in sanctification. So Paul is saying, you are saints here. And then he's going to say, live like saints for the rest of the letter. Throughout the rest of the letter, he's going to be calling these people to live in a way that corresponds and displays That they are the holy ones. This new way of living's got to flow out of this identity they've been granted by grace through faith in Christ. We cannot get that backwards. Right? We cannot get that backwards. If we get that backwards, we end up adopting the Roman Catholic view of saints. Who's a saint? Who becomes a saint to Roman Catholics? Someone who has performed and achieved some great thing. Who's a saint according to the Bible? Everyone who believes in Jesus Christ is a saint. You're a saint. I'm a saint, if you're trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Bible calls us to act like that, to live like that. So we want to make application today in three categories, authority, community, and identity. We see it all throughout this text. Authority is first. I'm asking that you submit to this letter. In fact, I'm asking beyond this letter that you submit to all of God's word as an authority over you. I'm asking that on the front end, as we get ready to dive in, that you put yourself under the authority of this word. That you go ahead and say, yes. Yes, Lord, I am and I will what you say. I am who you say I am, and I will do what you say to do. Yes, Lord. Like, go ahead and make that decision now. Because if you come at it with some kind of, I don't know about this, we'll see about this, what's he calling me to You are putting yourself as an authority over the word of God. I'm inviting you to this humble submission on the front end to just say, whatever you say, Lord, I just want to understand it right and follow you. That's the way authority works. So at our house, Laura used to say to our children all the time, still says it on occasion, you can choose to obey or you can choose to get a spanking. That's the way it went, right, Asher? There's a moment. You can choose to obey, or you can choose to get a spanking. We were talking about this, about this authority Tuesday, and one of, my, one of my friends said, Did you get to pick and choose which of your dad's commands you obeyed when you were a kid? And I said, Sure did. But I did not get to choose an end around of the consequences of disobedience. I got to choose which commands I disobeyed, and when I did, the consequences came. I didn't get a choice then. I'm inviting you to have that kind of posture. To the Word of God, submit to it, or face the consequences. That's it. Right? There, there's no like, I'll oh, take it a leave and take this part, leave this part. No, submit to all of it. It's authoritative. God's Word is authoritative. That's the authority. Secondly, the community. If we learn one thing about church here, is that it's a gathering, gathered together. The church is not some random, scattered, isolated believers. It's a local body. Being part of the church is much more than assembling together, but it is not less than assembling together. It is not less than seeing each other. It is not less than being involved in each other's lives. It's more than that. It's not less than that. And it's not just on Sunday. It's life together all the time. And it's not just seeing each other. It's really knowing each other and helping each other. All of those one another's of the the scriptures that we are supposed to do for each other, that's active. It's not just knowing faces and seeing people. It's being involved in their lives. It's teaching theology. It's helping people live in practical holiness. It's reminding them who they are. And it's being who you are. It's a family. So I'm asking, as we go into 2 Corinthians I'm asking you to double down on your investment in this local church. Double down right now. Commit to being super invested in this local church. Attendance is part of that. Regular attendance is part of that. Fellowship is part of that. Growth in discipleship is part of that. Giving is part of that. Service is part of that. Love and care and concern. All of these things are part of that. We're the church. The gathering of God's people. Under God's word, for His glory. Double down on your commitment to the local church. We need the community. And then finally, when we talk about identity, I gotta ask: If you're a saint, are you a saint? All of you want to say, "Oh no, I'm not. Don't, 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 don't talk like that. I'm, I'm no saint." If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you're a saint. I'm not. I'm not asking about your performance. I'm not asking about your behavior. I'm asking about whether or not you are trusting in Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord. Are you? If yes, as Lecrae said, homie, you're a saint. You're a saint. If not, I invite you to repent of your sins and trust in Jesus Christ today. Receive holiness. Like positional holiness. Be declared righteous in the courtroom of God who is the judge. He will say of you, righteous. Righteous. Repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you a saint? Maybe some of you need to remember that you are. Like, I haven't always been a fan of that last song we sang. I am who you say I am. I am who you say I am. I am who you say I am. I haven't always been a fan of that song. But it works today. Because sometimes we need to be reminded that we are who he says we are. If he has said we are saints, holy ones, we are. We are. That's our identity. And the more we can ground ourselves in that, the more we can embrace that as our core identity, the more we will live as saints practically in the world. And so we need these reminders. In fact, there are certain church traditions that greet one another that way. Good morning, saints. Hey, saint. Maybe we need to adopt some of that around here as a reminder of who we are in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Remember that this position is granted to us as a gift by God's grace. It's not something we deserve, right? What do we deserve from the Holy God? Only wrath and condemnation, right? Because of our deep sinfulness. But what has he done? What has he done for us to reconcile us to himself? He sent his own son to die in our place so that we could be justified, declared righteous, forgiven of our sins, adopted as sons into his family. Declared, saints, this is a gift we receive by trusting in Jesus, turning from our sins. So I invite you to do that. And the last thing I want you to notice, thread that ties all this together, is the God-centeredness of all of this. Who's the source of the authority? It's the Lord. Who's the source of the community? It's the Lord. Who's the source of this identity? It's the Lord. So as we walk through 2 Corinthians, it's not ultimately about Paul, Paul. It's not ultimately about the church in Corinth. It's not ultimately about you and me and FBC. This is ultimately about the Lord. It's about him. So let's be looking for him every, every step along the way. Okay? Let's stand together and pray. Lord, your word is so rich. None of it is wasted. All of it breathes from your mouth and profitable to us. 2 Corinthians 1.1 is no exception. So we pray that you will drive deep into us these lessons about authority and community and identity. Remind us of the God-centeredness of all of it, that we would see you every step of the way and change us. I pray especially for folks in this room who are not saints. They are not trusting in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Oh, will you change that today? Lord, will you open their eyes to your holiness and their sinfulness? Will you let them see Christ dying in their place? Will you grant them repentance and faith and rescue them by your grace for your glory? We pray all this in Christ's name.